Good morning. Good morning. As we dive in to Revelation 21 and 22, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is so good uh, to be together this morning. And we just have a, a very simple request. That as we look at Revelation 21 and 22, that you will show us your glory. And that we will leave changed. In Jesus' name. Well, as I think you've already heard this morning, we've had an incredible weekend with our young adults as our, at our winter conference. You guys are all seated right here, um, so please don't give us a hard time. Thank you. <laughs> and we're going to be uh, looking at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, and our message today really accomplishes two things at the same time. This is the final session of our winter conference, and it's also part two of the message that Pastor Jeff started last week. He preached the first five verses, six verses of Revelation 21, and we're going to finish that uh, this morning. But since most of you haven't been with us all weekend at our winter conference, we want to catch all of you, not you, all of you, up to speed on where we've been. So we started in the Garden of Eden on Friday night, and we learned that God created the garden as a garden temple. Temples are places in Scripture where heaven and earth collide. They overlap. And in the garden, there was no need for a temple because God dwelled perfectly. He walked with this people. Now, that all changed in Genesis 3 with the fall. Sin created a chasm between God and man where God no longer walked with this people in the garden. Adam and Eve are exiled and sin entered the world. But in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise that someday there would be an offspring, a, a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent once and for all. The rest of Scripture traces that storyline. Who would be the one who would crush the serpent? Ultimately, who is going to be the one that's going to get us back into the garden to get us back into Eden? Even though humanity failed time and time again, God never gave up on his people never gave up his desire to dwell with us. And as the storyline continued, God started by revealing himself to individual families and people in the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac, Noah, Moses. And then as God rescues his people out of Egypt, he brings them to the promised land. He gives them the gift of a tabernacle and a temple a place where all of the people can worship God, all of the people can see the manifest presence of God, the cloud, the fire, residing above the Holy of Holies. And then comes Solomon. Solomon built this incredibly beautiful temple with all sorts of garden imagery, palm trees, flowers, pomegranates, the, the golden lampstand, which we call a menorah, was shaped like a tree, the tree of life. And after Solomon built the temple, many would have wondered, is this the guy? Is he the one promised in Genesis 3.15 who would come and destroy, crush the head of the serpent once and for all? We have the blessing. We have the land. Is he the seed? Well, Solomon wasn't quite the seed. All 700 of his wives, he disobeyed the Lord. He's pulled away. He worships other gods. His descendants followed suit. And the people followed. They worshiped other gods. And in 586, God exiles the two southern tribes into Babylon, but he removed his presence 
from the temple. And even when Zerubbabel, some of the exiles came back, they rebuilt the temple 70 years later, God's presence never returned. And we have 400 years of silence and we're all asking, God, how are you going to fulfill your promise to dwell with your people? And then comes the incarnation. When heaven and earth collide in a way that they never have before in the God-man, Jesus, fully God, fully man, the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament temple imagery through his sacrificial life, death, and resurrection. He rendered the sacrificial system completely obsolete as the once and for all sacrifice for all of time. Jesus called himself the temple, the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's what Paul writes in Colossians 1, that in him, Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we were ushered in to a new era, really a new covenant And following Jesus' resurrection, the disciples would have thought, well, you're certainly the the one who's going to crush the serpent. Do we get to go back to the garden now? And that's when Jesus disappeared and ascended into heaven and throws the disciples a giant curveball and gives them the task to take his gospel throughout the world. And while the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth might seem like a deviation from the theme of God seeking to dwell amongst his creation and his people, it really isn't. In the New Testament, the themes of dwelling and mission are intricately connected. Just listen to how Jesus paired the theme of mission and dwelling together in Matthew 28, the passage that records his great commission for the church. This is how it starts in verse 18. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Now go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the mission, but he doesn't stop there. He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the idea of dwelling. So Jesus promises his followers that even though he's returning to the Father, even though he's ascending into heaven, he is going to continue to be with them to the end of the age when he returns. That's the language of dwelling. So Jesus promises to dwell amongst the church, his followers, us, until he returns. But how does he do that? Well, we answered that in last night's session. We learn in the Mount of Ascension in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus promises to his disciples that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, the third person of our triune God, to literally come and indwell all of his disciples. In the shocking turn of event, the church becomes the temple of God, the place where heaven and earth collide and overlap. And as followers of Jesus, as we spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, as we make disciples, we are literally carrying the presence of God via the Holy Spirit with us. 
So as the global church continues to be constructed upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, we are being built into a spiritual temple, a place in which God dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. And that is incredible, which means that if you know Christ, you are a temple. You are a temple of God's presence. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's amazing because it reminds us that we are as close to getting back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the Garden of Eden, that we have been since Genesis 3. Because in the Garden, that was that first time that God dwelled among his creation. So we're as close to that as we've ever been. However, we're not there fully yet. There's still a remaining divide. So we continue to look forward to a time when there will be no remaining divide between heaven, representing the full presence of God, and earth, representing his creation. We continue to look ahead to when we will enter into what the Bible refers to as the new Jerusalem, where there is no divide between God's presence and his people. So in many ways, we live in a time of theological tension. We live in an era of already and not yet. We already experience God's presence in a major capacity. His spirit indwells us. Yet we don't yet fully and perfectly experience his presence. We still await the day when God will say in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So let's think about this tension of already, not yet, in this way. Uh, Over New Year's, I had the opportunity to be part of a small group from Highland that went down to the Dominican Republic for a short-term mission trip. We were doing some pastoral theological education. And as we were traveling down to the DR, our final leg of the trip was a four-hour flight from Atlanta into Punta Cana. And from the moment we landed in Punta Cana and we disembarked the plane and walked through uh, the little area into the international terminal, it was very clear that we were already in the DR. We were, we were no longer in America. From the language difference to the wonderful temperature difference to the cultural difference, we were no longer in Atlanta. Yet, at the same time, while we were in the international terminal, we were not yet fully in the Dominican Republic either. We still hadn't gone through customs. We still hadn't gone through immigration. We still didn't have that all-important visa in our passport. So even though we were there, we weren't fully there yet. We were kind of stuck in the in-between. We already exited the U.S., but we had not yet fully entered and experienced the DR. And hopefully that gives a little illustration of what we experience as Christ followers. We've already been transferred from the kingdom of this earth, from the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of heaven through faith in Christ. Yet we still have not yet experienced the fullness and the completion of our redemption. We still await the day when our faith will become sight and God will invite us to enter into the new creation for all of eternity. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to maybe one of the last pages, Revelation 21 and 22, if you're not there already. If you spent any time in Revelation, you know this might be the hardest, if one of the hardest books in the entire Bible to interpret. 
to do this passage justice. We need to be experts in apocalyptic literature. We need to know the whole story of the Bible. We need to be experts in the prophets, not the easy ones, the hard ones like Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Joel. If we're going to do this text justice, this is going to take hundreds of hours of study with hours worth of teaching. Some of you have already put up with hours worth of teaching this weekend, so we're going to spare you this morning. This is daunting, and I'm tempted just to read the text and close in prayer. Andrew wouldn't let me do that. So we're going to have to make at least a couple of observations this morning that will just scratch the surface of the glory that's coming in eternity. So I have a favor to ask. As we read, I want us to exercise our imagination. John received this as a vision. He saw this. So let's try to picture what John would have seen. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. Andrew and I will go back and forth. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, obviously, this text is filled with intense imagery. And we are not going to have time to unpack all of it. But we do want to unpack a few of the most important images. So let's first look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 21. In these verses, an angel tells John that he is going to show him the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. But as John is carried away and set on a mountain, as he turns around, what does he see? He sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. So thus, in some way, the new Jerusalem is being equated with the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. Now, this is a little bit interesting because in the rest of the New Testament, who is the bride of the Lamb? Who is the wife of the, wife of the Lamb? It's the church. In fact, in Revelation 19, that's what the church is identified as, the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ. So what's John doing here? Is he mixing his metaphors? Is he trying to be purposefully confusing? How are we to interpret this imagery? Well, I believe that John is trying to teach us that the new Jerusalem is best understood as both a place and a people. The new Jerusalem is symbolic of God's people, the now pure and spotless church living in God's place, the most holy city, which is symbolic of the holy of holies, experiencing the unbridled presence of God. So what's the new Jerusalem? It's God's people living in God's place, enjoying God's presence. And that really brings us to our next important question. Why is this incredible place dubbed the new Jerusalem? Why not the new Wausau or the new New York? Obviously, we understand why it's not the new Chicago, who'd want to spend eternity there. But why is it the new Jerusalem? And to answer that question, we need to consider a tale of two cities that's laid out in Scripture. In the big story of Scripture, the authors often use two different cities to signify two different types of humanity. Fallen, unredeemed humanity that lives in rebellion against God and redeemed humanity that has new life through faith in Christ. So the city of Babylon, or Babel, in Genesis 11, often represents unredeemed humanity's rejection of God and rebellion against his ways. But then the city of Jerusalem often represents the city of God. It was the spiritual epicenter of the old covenant. It was literally the city that housed the temple in which God's presence dwelled. So in Revelation, specifically, John constantly uses these two cities to contrast fallen humanity with redeemed humanity. Therefore, the association of this beautiful city coming down out of heaven with Jerusalem is teaching us that this city will be a temple city in which only God's people will reside. In Revelation 21.8, we learn that those who rebel against God those who have aligned themselves with the ethos and the characteristics of Babylon, their portion will not be in the new Jerusalem. Their portion instead will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. As you're reading, you likely noticed a lot of numbers. There's numeric symbolism. What number did you hear repeated over and over again? 
12. 12,000 stadia, 12 gates, 12 pearls, 12 foundations. Andrew didn't bring his calculator, but the rest of us realized that 12 times 12 is 144, right? The wall was 144 cubits thick. We see the number 12 all of the time in Scripture, don't we? If we see the number 12 in the Old Testament, what is it often symbolic of? The 12 tribes. If we see the number 12 in the New Testament, what is it often symbolic of? The 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. Didn't you catch that in the reading? The 12 gates are named after the 12 tribes. The 12 foundations of the wall are built upon the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Do you see the symbolism? That as John sees a vision of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the city is built on both the old covenant and the new covenant. The apostles and the 12 tribes. The new Jerusalem is the city for all of God's people for all of time. This is not for the Jews. This is not for the Gentiles. This is for anyone who's placed their faith in Christ. This text ties all of scripture together, both the old and the new covenants. And then there's temple imagery. Look again at Revelation 21 verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's almost as if John was confused. He didn't see a temple. That might sound strange to us, but if you put yourself in the shoes of a good first century Jewish man, it makes more sense. If God's going to recreate Jerusalem, the city of God, what's going to be at the center of the city? A temple. So John's surprised. There's no temple. Why? Because a temple is a place where heaven and earth collide and overlap. The only time that we need a temple is when there's a gap between God's glory and our humanity. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden, was there a temple? No. There was no need for a temple because God walked with his people. The same is true of the new Jerusalem. There is no need for a temple because we will walk perfectly with God and enjoy his perfect presence. Maybe you realize that the whole city was a, a cube. You see that? Did you know there's only one other cube in all of Scripture? Anyone know what that is? The Holy of Holies. It's almost as if the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is the eternal Holy of Holies, the place where God's people can go to be with him for all time, not just for the high priest one day a year, but for all of God's people for all time. And some of my favorite imagery of the New Jerusalem comes in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 21. We learn that in the New Jerusalem, there will be no celestial light sources like the sun or the moon or the stars. Why? What is that symbolism trying to communicate? Well, because there will be no more need for those light sources. The scripture tells us that the unbridled presence of God, the glory of God himself, will illuminate the entire city. Jesus will quite literally be the light of the world. 
And just, we, we can't fully imagine what the illuminating glory of God is going to feel like, but, but let's just try to use a, 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 an illustration to just scratch at the surface. Think of it this way. Let's say that it's late February, and it's been negative 20 outside for two weeks, and you haven't seen the sun in a month. I'm not giving you a prophetic word. I hope this does not come to pass. This is, this is just an illustration, okay? So, and you decide you can't handle it. You can't take WASA anymore. You're going to get one of those new cheap flights out of CWA down to Florida. You fly down there, rent a car, drive to the beach. And as soon as you go out on the beach, it's a beautiful day. There's no partial sun. There's no partly cloudy. It's full sun, 80 degrees. And in that moment, when you walk out, out onto the beach, how does the illuminating force of the sun feel? absolutely incredible. It warms your body that Wisconsin is just trying to depress and kill, right? It warms you right up. And and our passage is telling us, you know, that's just a hint of what the new Jerusalem is going to feel like. The light emitted from the glory of God will have an effect that's infinitely greater than our sun. It will illuminate the whole city. It will warm us even to the depths of our soul. And here's the best part. If you're a Pacey Wisconsinite like me, you don't need sunscreen. You're not going to get sunburned. You don't even need sunglasses to filter it out. You'll be invited to bask in the glory and the beauty of God's presence for all of eternity without fear or reservation. And these verses also tell us that in the New Jerusalem, there's no more night and the gates of the city will never be shut Another beautiful symbol and powerful promise. Just think about this way. Why did ancient cities shut their gates at nighttime? It was to protect those who dwelled within the city. Because you realize those that are outside the secure walls of the city, there were evil forces. There were dark forces. There were nefarious persons that wanted to break into the city to rob, to steal, to harm, to cause evil. And they would like to use the cover of nightfall to sneak into the city to cause these issues. The lack of night and the lack of shut gates in the New Jerusalem is trying to teach us that there is no longer any person, any force, or any power that threatens or harms us. There's no need to shut the gate because there's nothing in the new creation that's going to bother you because we are always safe and the presence of God, and we are always under his protection. This new heavenly city will be filled with all sorts of precious stones and jewels, precious metals. And I very graciously gave that section of the passage for Andrew to read. What a kind gift. Amethyst, chrysoprase, you did a great job. If you just say biblical words confidently enough, no one else knows how to say them. (laughs) So you should be pretty good. Well, you succeeded. So the challenge with that section is we don't necessarily know all of the contemporary parallels to all of those precious stones, but we know some. So let me explain. You heard the title Jasper. That's probably something like a diamond. The wall is made of Jasper. Last I checked, that's a little more expensive than the sheetrock I can buy at Menards. Or how about the gates made of pearls? The largest pearl ever discovered, to our knowledge, was found a little over 15 years ago by a fisherman. 
26 inches wide, 75 pounds. That is a massive pearl. I don't even think the bodybuilding Brian Niemeyer is strong enough to carry that around on his neck. <laughs> Definitely not photoshopped. I think that was just taken yeah. from a couple years ago. A couple, a couple days yeah. ago. A couple days ago. <laughs> I mean, picture a 75-pound pearl. That's huge. But in the New Jerusalem, John sees pearls that are as big as a gate. That's huge. And then there's gold. Not just any gold, pure gold. Gold without impurity. Gold, it filled the temple, didn't it? Gold overlaid all of the most precious temple furnishings. In John's vision, he points us both backward and forward, looking back at the temple and ahead of the glory, the value of the new Jerusalem. Gold's valuable today, isn't it? It's about $2,000 an ounce. If I was worth my weight in gold, I would be worth about $5.2 million. Don't try to figure out how much I weigh. (laughs) But can you imagine an entire city made of pure gold? Not even the likes of Elon Musk or Bill Gates could afford that kind of city. As John sees these precious stones, the gold, the imagery, we can't even comprehend the value, the worth. It, It stretches the very limits of even our imagination. We also see that within this city, there is a river that flows from the thrones of God and the Lamb and Jesus. And this river is called a river that contains the water of life. And this picture of rivers that contain living water is another, is another theme that's woven throughout Scripture. All the way back in Genesis 2, verse 9, we think of the Garden of Eden. We learn that there is a, a river that flows out of Eden and splits into four rivers that waters creation. In Ezekiel 47, the prophet Ezekiel has a, a vision of a temple. And from this temple, there's a river that gets deeper and deeper And this river brings life and refreshment uh, to a dry and and parched land. In John chapter 4, Jesus picks up this imagery of living waters. As he's talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he tells her that Jesus, he's the source of living water. And that anyone who believes in him, Jesus will give a spring of, of water that wells up into eternal life. So throughout scripture, we see that rivers of water are this continual picture of of healing and life. And in the new Jerusalem, there's a river that flows throughout the city and it originates from the thrones of God and Jesus. And it's clearly meant to communicate the eternal life and healing that we get to experience. And we only experience it because it directly flows from Christ It directly flows from Jesus. And on either side of the river, John sees the tree of life. That points us back to the garden, doesn't it? The last time that we experienced the tree. The tree, it's a picture of eternal life from God. A tree that bears fruit, one each month. But in my opinion, the greatest promise of all comes from Revelation 22, verse 4. It says this, And they shall see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Let me start with the second half. Paul tells us in Ephesians that when we're adopted into God's family, 
we get a new name. That makes sense in our culture when a child gets adopted, they get a new last name, the name of their new adoptive dad. And the same is true for us spiritually, that when we're adopted in God's family, we get a new name, a new last name. We get his name. And John tells us that name is going to be penned in permanent sharpie across our forehead for all of eternity as a reminder to us, as a reminder to everyone that we're adopted into his family and nothing and no one can change that. But then the text says that we'll see his face. See, in Scripture, anytime we see a reference to seeing God's face, it's shorthand for beholding all of God's glory. You remember what happened to Moses in Exodus 34? He asked God, can I, can I see your face? I want to see your glory. After he'd received the tablets of stone for not the first time, but the second time, he says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. And what did God say? Yeah, not unless you want to die. Because in our fallenness, in our humanness, we can't behold the fullness of God's glory and expect to live in the next second. So God in his graciousness, he hides Moses behind a rock. God passes by. Moses beholds just a portion of God's glory. And then what happened? His face literally radiated light for days, for weeks after he came down the mountain. But the day is coming when we will behold all of God's glory and we will live. When we will dwell with him forever, when we will walk with him just like Adam and Eve walked with him in the garden in the cool of the day. As one pastor said, of all of God's gifts, this is his greatest. Will the family reunions be incredible? Absolutely. Will the architecture take our breath away? For sure. Will it be amazing to not know the, the pain, trials, and temptation? Yeah. But the greatest gift of all is an eternal, perfect relationship with our Creator. And that's an invitation that's open for anyone. You notice what John said. Entrance into the new city is only available for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Is your name in that book? The only way Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you placed your faith in Christ? That is the only way that we are getting entrance into this city. Is by saying, I can't save myself. I need Jesus. Don't leave today without knowing that you know Christ. And as we think about applying this text to our life, we want to go back to that already not yet tension. And Andrew's going to start by Diving into the not yet. The already. Sorry, I, I, I had a 50-50 chance of getting it right. You're good. <laughs> so as we think about that already not yet tension, there are ways in which we already live in the new Jerusalem in some capacity. Because as we learned earlier, we are no longer citizens of this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. So we are already living out that identities to some degree. So how do we live in the new Jerusalem right here and right now? I just have three, three quick ideas for how to pursue that. 
The first is set your mind. Set your mind. And I really draw that from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. In Colossians 3, Paul says this. If you've been raised with Christ, so if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've experienced new life, if you are now a citizen of his kingdom, then you should seek the things that are above where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hid with Christ in God. So part of living out our new identity means setting our mind on the kingdom of heaven. Recognizing that though we live in the kingdom of this world, the values, the priorities of this world should no longer define us like they once did. We should, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and trust God to take care of the rest. I mean, setting our mind and recognizing that we need to view everything in life through the lens of eternity. And that's going to transform the way that we, the way that we prioritize, the way that we live each and every day. And then Paul continues on in Colossians 3 in verses 5 through 12, and he reminds us that after we set our mind, we need to seek to be sanctified. So we need to seek to be sanctified in our lives. Jesus calls us, and thankfully, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out our kingdom identity right here and right now. From the moment that we place our faith in Christ, we repent of sin and we submit to Jesus as our Savior and King, we have new spiritual life. But not only that, we have a new spiritual calling. We begin this process of looking less and less like our old broken selves, and we are transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. We are sanctified. And a big piece of that in Colossians 3, Paul tells us, is putting off all of the sins that once defined us and putting on new godly habits of imitating Christ uh, in our lives. And as we seek to be sanctified, our goal is to become who Jesus has already declared us to be, to live out our new identity. And then just a third quick one as well. It means living already in the new Jerusalem means that we savor time with our Savior. Think back to Matthew 28. When Jesus is getting ready to go back and ascend into heaven for a time until he returns for us, Jesus makes sure to say, I don't want you to misinterpret this as I will no longer be with you. He says, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age, even till I return. Which reminds us that though we are not yet fully in the new Jerusalem, that doesn't mean that we are not currently in the presence of God. Jesus dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. We do not worship a distant, far-off God and Savior. We worship a Savior who loves us enough, who desires closeness and intimacy with us enough to literally take up residence in our lives. So we need to savor our Savior and savor that time, which means when we worship God together this morning, we're not worshiping a God that's up there. We're worshiping a God that's in here. And I don't know if we always grasp that. 
So we need to savor the nearness of our Savior. As we think about Revelation 21 and 22, and we picture the glory that's coming, we get excited about it, we dream about it. At some point, metaphorically speaking, we have to come back to earth. It doesn't take very long for us to remember the the painful trials that we walk through here. See, the glory of the new Jerusalem is often juxtaposed against the, the pain that we walk through here. You know that pain. Maybe it's a pain of grief. Anytime we walk through death or loss, we're reminded that this is not the way things are supposed to be, that death has been an interruption of God's design and his plan. Maybe it's chronic pain or mental illness. Maybe it's broken relationships or tight finances. All of us know the pain of temptation. All of us have said, Lord, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to be done with this desire. I don't want to face this temptation anymore. And we long for the new Jerusalem. So what do we do? Well, even though the suffering in our life now might be great, we have to remember that the glory coming in the new Jerusalem is infinitely and exponentially greater. And there's days when God is going to use the pain of the here and now to remind us that we're living in tents today. We're not in the new Jerusalem yet. Life here is just a vapor. The business that you're building, the home that we live in, the financial portfolio that you're creating is going to evaporate. Our true citizenship is in the heavenly city. And the pain of this life reminds us that that city's coming. It's what Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 18. I'm going to leave us with this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Let's live in and long for the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for answering our request. Thank you for showing us your glory in Revelation 21 and 22. Teach us to long for the day when we'll be able to behold all of your glory and live with you for all of eternity. Give in our, our hearts an enhanced picture of what that'll be like. And as we walk through any number of painful trials and challenges here and now, may you even use those this week to remind us of the great glory and joy that's coming in eternity. May we persevere well, living and longing for the new Jerusalem. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name.